he says of those other phenomenologists, those of you who propose a body in an abstract, as in the sense that we are all human, as in the sense that we are all enchained to existence by our bodies, as if it is the same. And this phenomenological experience of the black man in the colonies is such that it ain't the same, is such that the body cannot be looked at without consideration of it feeling brutalized, splayed, dismembered. I am not human in the way that you, maybe European philosophers, would propose a certain humanity common to all, a phenomenological structure that says we are all human, we all have a body, we all experience it in this way. No, we don't experience it in the same way. Welcome to a new episode of Africa is a Country Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs, streaming from Brooklyn, New York. My co-host is William Shoki. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa. Africa is a Country Talk, or AIC Talk, is a weekly talk and interview show. Um, watch out for new episodes. This is um, the second episode of the second season of the show. The show is produced, as always, by Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. And yes, here's the thing I never thought I would say. This is my last time uh, joining as a regular co-host. Not, it's not a complete goodbye, but mm-hmm. as the co-host, um, this is this is my signing off today with Will. After this, it's Will flying solo. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna miss you, Sean. I have to admit, I'm gonna miss being your, your translator when your internet is down. I'm going to miss the rapport and the banter that we have occasionally. Um, but I, I think hopefully it's I'm, time. I'm well, well, what was I, what was I about to say, but it's time. It's time. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, um, yeah, you've, you've got a lot going on and, uh, I just want to watch football. <laughs> which you, you've earned, you've earned the right to you've, and, and I've been, I've been grateful for, for having you along the ride. And like you said, you're gonna be back occasionally, um, but I suppose I suppose the point was throughout all this time, kind of being by my side to kind of help me ease into the the role of 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 doing the solo, and and we'll see if I've if I've been prepared well, which which I think I have. So well, you, you, we've done like what this is episode forty episode forty eight. So that's almost fifty so episodes. Yeah, you, which is unbelievable. Forty eight episodes. That's almost a whole year's worth of episodes. If you Pretty don't have essential holidays, so you're ready, bro. You're ready. Thank you, thank you. And and speaking of of all of these changes, uh, a reminder to everyone that the episodes are pre-recorded now and are going to be released primarily as a podcast, which will be available on your favorite podcasting platform. But we will still have select clips, which will go up individually on YouTube as well as on social media. To promote the show but if you want to listen to full episodes the best way to do that is as a podcast and very excited about the changes and we promise that the content is still always going to be engaging the guests are always going to be interesting and speaking of interesting guests today's ones are, are ones we're really excited about yep so this is um, as we said episode 48 in today's show we are talking about a new book called Fanon. Phenomenology, I'm going to get that right. <laughs> Psychology 
which is the first edited collection dedicated to exploring the explicitly phenomenal, phenomenological, ah, got it, <laughs> underlying Franz Fanon's most important insights. That's a mouthful. As you can see, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not in psychology <laughs> or psychiatry. So we will break down that uh, tongue twister in a few minutes. So and we are grateful to be joined by two of the collection's editors, uh, returning guest, Derek Hook, who is Associate Professor of Psychology at Duquesne University, I said that right, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and an extraordinary professor of psychology at the University of Pretoria, South Africa, um, as well as Lenny Lobser, uh, who is an Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychology at the same university, Duquesne University, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, the third editor of this book is uh, Miraj Desai. Um, he's not he, he's not here today, so we got we got the South Africans to come today. <laughs> the book comes out with Rutledge in November and is available um, for pre-order. And before we talk about the book, a reminder of last week's episode, which, if you haven't caught already, was a really fascinating discussion with Professor Siba Grovigui of Cornell University on the ongoing political crisis in Guinea. If you want to check out the entire episode, go to your favorite podcast platform or check out select clips on our YouTube channel. And as always, a reminder to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as to check out our website where you can see all of the wonderful writing that is on there, as well as where you can also support Africa's a country's work financially. So we're very excited to welcome Derek and Lenny onto the show to, to talk about their, their awesome book. Uh, welcome to both of you. Right. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, it's Lesbian, by the way, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, my apologies. My apologies. I, I, missed, I mixed that up. It's all the tongue twisters that are. Yep. No, 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 no I've, I've, I've heard it all. Uh, that's, very, words, uh, that's a very Cape Town name, so I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's a 60s right. name, too. Yeah, that's <laughs> Why don't we start with this question then, which I think is a very easy one from, from me, I suppose, which is two South African professors of psychology at Duquesne, like how did, the, how did that happen? Um, I can jump in and the truth of the matter is that we actually three, there's three professors, uh, Roger Brooke is also here. And part of the reason is that this is a very unique department, kind of looks at psychology very differently than most other departments. It looks at psychology as a qualitative, uh, uh, it does not, you know, it's, it's not the psychology of the lab. It's a psychology that looks at the whole human being um, in its wholeness. So it's a, it's a very unique department. It always has been, and there aren't many of them around. Um, we are, as a matter of fact, the only psychology department, in, well, there's two of us now in the United States that's accredited by the American Psychological Association as this particular unique brand of psychology that looks at people like Fanon and, and philosophy. Um, and so those of us, uh, Derek, Roger Brooke, who's our other um, uh, uh, South African, uh, we come from a particular tradition in South Africa that emphasized that kind of approach and just so happened that um, that this was home to us. We felt very at home in a department like this. So other than that, or colonizing the 
department <laughs> here <laughs> in a different kind of way. Provincializing? Uh, yeah, even so, it is a strange thing. Yeah. I mean, we're we're grateful that you are all there at the same time because uh, I think the the collection that you've produced looks very interesting. And one thing that I found really fascinating about how you begin is you spoke about how it's important to recall a place and time when it comes to moments of intellectual transformation as much as it is important for recalling moments of personal transformation and. When you were putting this book together, it was in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent BLM protests that happened. So I thought it'd be interesting to know, what was that like? How did that ongoing historical moment inform the, the effort that you were putting together? Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things we discovered, I, let, 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 me, let me step back. There was a sense in which the book grew from a very delineated, a very circumscribed kind of goal. You know, it was to take Fanon into, it was to bring back the phenomenological Fanon. And phenomenology in this sense is just a sense of the lived experience, the Fanon of lived experience. But even though we had that goal, that small goal, a circumscribed goal, as we were busy with it, we learned so much more because Fanon is such a multifaceted and complex kind of writer that we looked at our own experience and we looked at the world around us and we saw how different people took up, how different organizations uh, took up Fanon, particular to the now of recognizability, as, as, as Walter Benjamin says, particular to the circumstance that they found themselves in, such that the Fanon of BLM is not necessarily the phenomenon of the Arab Spring, it's not necessarily the phenomenon of Roads Must Fall or uh, Black Consciousness of the 70s. And that to us, even though we may have known that intuitively, it was just so striking. I mean, you saw um, lists of essential readings come out from Oprah's magazine to Good Housekeeping to the Anarchist uh, uh, Register, and they all had phenomenon on there. But they all took Fanon in this very particular kinds of ways. And we were just struck, I think, I was struck by how Fanon is taken up by the now of the moment and by the groups that take him up. I mean, if, even within time periods, the Fanon of South Africa of the 2020s is not the Fanon that we met in 1985. Yeah. So that was one of the big lessons I learned. And I'm sure Derek will embroider on that. Well, uh, what, what Lesman says is, is really interesting because one of the things I think we learned in terms of the work on the book is precisely what he's speaking about, that there's so many phenons, um, and I think most of them intersect in very interesting ways. But as he was speaking, I was thinking of that, that famous quote, um, every generation must discover its mission, fulfill it or betray it in relative opacity. And in mm. a way, you could say that maybe this is, this is what's happening now. Um, in terms of BLM, uh, in terms of Afro-pessimist theory, that this is a generation which is taking up Fanon in a certain way to, to approach certain challenges, political and otherwise conceptual, theoretical. Um, and, 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 and a distinct Fanon emerges each time. Um, and maybe just also to loop back to the, the question before, isn't it interesting that we have um, Fanon transforming psychology? 
and not just for non a South African form of psychology that's making its impact in in, in a way in, in American and, and, and world psychology. And I say that just because um, of some of the things that, that Lesman and I would have in common. Um, one of them is that that Fanon was crucial to how we wanted to think and understand what psychology was. And that's not a usual move in many disciplinary contexts of psychology. And I think that was itself made possible by being in, in, in South Africa. Um, so, you know, it, it seems to me that the book is kind of doing that. It, it's making a contribution through South Africa to Africa to a, a, a disciplinary context, which may not otherwise have known what to do with Fanon. And one thing that I find interesting is that at the same time, you've mentioned that Fanon is the scholar who is taken up by so many different groups at various different points in history and serving different theoretical purposes and historical needs. But much as that is the case, something that the book underscores is the extent to which Fanon as a psychologist and Fanon as a phenomenologist is something that is still underexplored, or at least something that doesn't really dominate in, in how people think and write about him. You mentioned that your preference, or maybe that's the wrong word, but you read black skins or white masks more than you did Wretched of the Earth. And Wretched of the Earth is typically the, the book that people sort of use to understand the, the post-colonial condition. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that aspect of, of Anon's professional background is is so neglected I, i'm sure lesman has has something to say about that but i'll just jump in very quickly um just to make two points one crucial bridging point here is is just to bear in mind and you know we've been battling about phenomenology what is phenomenology but one crucial element in the book is to foreground the lived experience. And one of the things that Fanon does, does multiple important, in many ways, unprecedented and really revolutionary and crucial, critical things. But one of the things he says is that we need an appeal to the facts of lived experience itself. And unless we have that, the, an account based on lived experience, you, you lose something very crucial in the fight against anti-blackness, in the fight against colonialism, in, in the fight against racism. And I think that's what the book is trying to, to foreground in multiple different ways. But then just to come back to your question, um, there's other stuff happening in South Africa right now. So, for example, at Vitz, Ashila Mbembe is, and, and Weiser is running a whole seminar series on Fanon after Fanon. But the idea, I think, in that series, and certainly in, in, in some of the contemporary scholarship, is to bring back for non the psychiatrist. And it's interesting that that's fallen away. There might be multiple reasons for that. But now, one of the things that is certainly happening right now in Fanon scholarship is in renewed attention to some of the psychiatric writings, which have only now recently been uh, published in English. So we're hoping to make a little bit of a contribution to that. But I think increasingly, people want to see Fanon not just as a political revolutionary. I mean, that never falls away. That's crucial. That's the foreground main story but that, that he is attentive to psychological dynamics, that he is a, a psychiatric thinker as much as a political thinker. Mm -hmm. I, I can only underscore what Derek said. He said it so much better than I could, but perhaps what I could add, William, uh, is, is this feeling I had the very first time I read Fanon, the very first time, it was Black Skin, White Masks. And that was not, and, and I'm careful to use the word feeling 
because that was what it was, you know? It wasn't an impression of the head or the ego first, even though that might have been there, but it was a sense that, my God, this person gets me, this brother sees me, you know? And he sees me in a way that is, that, uh, that, that was into my soul, if you will, you know? And the way in which he did that, or the manner in which he did that through poetry and all of that, but it was because he spoke to a psychology, a soul, an experience in such a felt manner um, before all of the others, before all of the theory of the decolonization and all of that came, before all of that came, it was a felt experience. And I think that is what part of what, um, what just what stayed with me all these years. Um, and I didn't want to lose that. And I think that a return to that lived experience, or not a return, but just highlighting it alongside all of the others, just um, uh, gives credence to the complexity and the fullness of his work, as it does to our experience as readers of Fanon and the ways in which we met up with him and faced up to him. Okay. I wanted to, I just wanted to get back to the, to this because you're sort of hinting at it about how you how, how does one encounter Fanon, which is in the introduction you kind of uh, you know there's a the author kind of moves in between so it's, I could imagine when it's when it's um, when it's Derek writing or when it's you writing um, less when so can you the, the 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 thing that struck me is you talk about how the Fanon of 1970s and you've kind of mentioned this already if you could just say a little bit more about this the way people encounter Fanon in South Africa in the 1970s, or the way they encounter him in the 1980s, or the way they encounter him now, and South Af you use South African introduction. Can you just say a little bit more about that for people who are not familiar, say, with, with often like how people experience, you know, the political history of South Africa, and mm -hmm. at their, these various different moments mm -hmm. in the introduction, I, and I just wanted people to hear a bit about that. Like how, how Fanon gets read, read, read differently at those particular times and gets, if you want, used politically differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, and Derek will jump in, I'm sure, as he sees it, but in a rather simplistic way. I mean, Nigel Gibson, who was one of the big commentators on Fanon, one of the big authors, and especially on the biographical and the historiographic and the, and the psychiatric. He makes this interesting comment. You know, he's writing from Britain, from England, you know. And he says in the 70s, Fanon was revitalized in Britain because Fanon was out of print in Britain. And he says Fanon was revitalized in Britain because Fanon was brought to Britain by South African exiles, notably black consciousness exiles, you know. And so in a certain sense, there's this migratory pattern, there's this travel, these exiles, these, these folks who... Uh, came to Britain, found sanctuary there, and organized from Britain, actually brings Fanon back to Britain where he's out of print. That Fanon was of a decolonizing, liberatory project. It was a particularly political project, um, but a political project which, by Black consciousness, had a profound psychological content, as the Biko, that famous quote, you know, of the most powerful weapon in the hands of the oppressor being the minds of the oppressed. And so Fanon is taken in that way in a profoundly psychological way as 
a sense of the creation of a new man, a new uh, African, one that a, in a radical way, you know. Moving into the 80s, though, we see a Marxist-Leninist phenomenon, especially with the Chartres, UDF, and all of those. We see a phenomenon that has, um, you know, where Marx is foregrounded in a certain sense. And some of the telling is there. I mean, Fanon speaks of alienation. His last chapter has the uh, quote from Marx's 18th Brumaire. But we overlook the criticisms that Fanon had about Marx in a particularly colonial uh, context. But that was his, it was, it was put to work in a political project. Meanwhile, for some of us in psychology, the Fanon that spoke to us was the phenomenon that looked for new humanism, the phenomenon that, that kind of spoke to the psychology of what it was for the black man to suffer in his body differently than the white. I mean, that's a quote from him. What it was, what was the experience like to live in this carceral livery that is one's skin, you know, in the South Africa. Now that sense of a lived experience as a black person within an oppressive regime might not necessarily be what a rose must fall person, you know. For them, maybe it is the it is the later it is the phenomenon of uh, of the wretched of the earth. Uh, it's, uh, it's the phenomenon that asks us to begin anew because these new administrators are like the old ones, or these new administrators, or that famous quote when the niggers kill each other. You know, um, to to be very blunt, uh, that's the quote from Fanon's. Um, and so the sense of a new beginning, of a new administration, of things having stayed the same, you know, of a radical, uh, 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 that might be a phenomenon that black skin, white mask could not offer, you know, uh, to a contemporary uh, uh, group. So those are some of the ways in which, uh, there are others too, but some of the ways in which in South Africa, for example, I think it was taken up in different ways. And I'm leaving out a few, but maybe Derek can jump in. I feel I'm, 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 I'm monopolizing. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, what I, I suppose what one would have to say is that there's something so powerfully resonant and of uh, complex and layered about how Fanon writes. And, and you could pick out a whole series of tributaries. So uh, Peter Hudis has got this book, uh, Philosopher of the Barricades, Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. And he starts with how a quote, which ends up being a slightly misconstrued quote about linking um, I'm not able to breathe or we can't breathe, which obviously has a, a crucial political resonance today, links to uh, a, a comment that, that Fanon makes at some point. But you see it happening in multiple different places. And for me, what's been so amazing about what Lesman is talking about is this kind of complex intertextuality. Oh, there you go. Thanks. This complex intertextuality and, and maybe coming to things more in a way as a kind of intellectual than, than an activist. I, I kept on noticing in, in, in really reading Biko as closely as possible and, and looking at documents, things that Barney Pitania would say in, in, in the Black Consciousness Movement in, in, in South African history, that you would hear this vernacular and, and uh, paraphrases and quotes breathing through that, that language. Um, the, the something about, for example, Biko talking about how the colonized is disfigured, um, the, the, the culture of the colonized. And so I, I kind of, it was, it's interesting to me how Fanon's language and how he expresses things becomes so utile for a variety of political sites and revolutionary struggles at different parts of the world. I think it's really a powerful part of what he does 
Um, and and it, it also speaks to how, how useful and how, indeed how his work is, I think, as, as Leslie was saying, a kind of feeling as much as a kind of, uh, uh, as much as a kind of politics. But just to end that thought, um, I remember speaking some years ago to Malika Wa'azania, who is a South African journalist, and I said to her, you know, it's so funny that there's all these overlaps between, you know, you can even hear these echoes, whether you think it through Shabukwe to, to Barney Patania to, to Biko, all of these, these voices, um, uh, Bloke Marisani, you know, all of these overlapping of themes. And her message to me was kind of, well, it's because they're saying and propounding the same political discourse of liberation. And that was quite striking to me because I was always thinking, well, you know, as a kind of academic, you're supposed to study how exactly the differences, but she was saying it's kind of all like a tapestry. It's all like a mosaic of a much broader struggle. Um, yeah. What I'm, what, yeah, that was really, that was really helpful. And what I think I want to address now is when it comes to, as you guys were reflecting on earlier, understanding the importance of lived experience in Fanon's work. How, you know, lived experience is, is kind of a, you know, it's a slashy word nowadays. I mean, it has a different resonance. Uh, it means something different in specific mm. circles. And, you know, people often interpret that word as, as referring to a kind of crude standpoint epistemology where the, the only valid point of reference mm. is that of the individual subject. But I think Fanon was approaching it in a much more holistic comprehensive way. So could you could you say a bit more about how Fanon understood lived experience and spoke about lived experience as as something that although is is experienced by the individual embodied subject can can still be uh, uh, is is an objective reflection of a of a social structure. So not ignoring the way in which uh, subjective experience is still conditioned by uh, external relations that you have with others. Um, I'll just jump in quickly, uh, and then I'm sure Lesen will will also add. For me, it was it was interesting because um, Lesen was talking about the kind of deep resonance about when he read Fanon, and me coming as you know someone who grew up in apartheid South Africa and as a, as, as a white English speaking white South African, I didn't have that you know, maybe obviously, but I did have this incredible fascination with trying to understand something that was completely out of my frame of reference in some respect. So to speak to your, your point, one of the things that phenomenology does, is not just a loose appeal to, well, I experienced this, so this is how it is, but it's a kind of detailed and textured engagement with something like a bodily sensation of experiencing racism. And, and, you know, so many times people refer to that famous section in Fanon, um, where Fanon is apprehended by a white child. And, you know, there's this, this incredibly visceral and rather disturbing um, depiction of a kind of bodily dismemberment. And for me, you could almost say there were some nodal points in Fanon, which I couldn't, couldn't get out of my head because they kind of disturbed me. And I, and I couldn't intuitively grasp it. And I think that was part of why a phenomenological appeal to a certain mode of lived experience of bodily sensations, of a bodily uh, experience of being ripped apart, broken apart, dismembered, um, splashed with, with black blood, all of these you know, incredibly violent and, and rather awful depictions that Fanon uses, which I think enables a different way of understanding something about the, the multiple impacts 
psychological, bodily, physiological, existential of the experience of racism. And I just got to say, I don't think I would have got anywhere near that without something of that appeal. And it's not, again, just lived experience. It's also the sensory dimension of how body uh, and, and one experiences one's own body as something potentially foreign, as problematic, as, 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 as difficult, as, as unwelcome. And I know, I know Lesman will say something about this, but one of the things that was so crucial for me is that the bodily register also becomes an important domain of critique, which takes us all the way to how Fanon ends black skin, white masks. Uh, make me, oh, Lesman will get it right. I'll get it wrong. It'll be something like, uh, oh, make me, um, uh, I'm giving it to you, Lesman. Um, oh, my body always make of me a man that questions. Yeah. So, so the bodily register itself of lived experience tells us something about social, structural forms of anti-blackness. Before you comment, Leswin, I just want to say something here uh, and interested to your thoughts. What I think is, is remarkable about this specifically and the significance of the body in Fanon's work is that so-called Western philosophy, by and large, almost downplays the significance of the body. It thinks of the individual as this rational Cogito, who has to use their, their thinking to primarily experience the world. And their body is primarily an obstacle that has to be overcome uh, rather than being a vehicle through which thinking also happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just also underscoring that this is not just a, a, I think you used the word, William, standpoint epistemology, just the sense that, you know, my experience is valid. Um, you have to, you know, you can't tell me what I feel. I feel what I feel. And so as such, it is a truth, you know. Um, Fanon's phenomenology and phenomenology proper, and I put that in quotation marks because there really isn't such a thing, is of a sort of that deep, wrestling, tortured kinds of sort that allows for a seeing to emerge that then cycles back to an ontology, or in the case of the black man, a lack of ontology. And it even goes up into the metaphysical, such that one can say, and so he changes phenomenology too, because he says of those other phenomenologists, those of you who propose a body in an abstract, as in the sense that we are all human, as in the sense that we are all enchained to existence by our bodies, as if it is the same. And this phenomenological experience of the black man in the colonies is such that it ain't the same, is such that the body cannot be looked at without consideration of it feeling brutalized, splayed, dismembered. I am not human in the way that you, maybe European philosophers, would propose a certain humanity common to all, a phenomenological structure that says we are all human, we all have a body, we all experience it in this way. No, we don't experience it in the same way. And such then, it becomes also an ontological question. That famous quote, the black man has no ontological resistance before the, uh, 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 before the white, then proposes, and that phenomenology allows then for this very, very, a, a, a disturbing kind of sense of a, of a of another kind of 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 knowing epistemology, but also being ontological uh, ontology, and also even for the metaphysical eruption 
of an existent, a being into being. And so it is, it is, it is, it is of a sort, I think, that that clearly is not is not just this this uh, and I and I and I'm going to use your word again standpoint epistemological uh, honor my feelings because it's mine and it's and it's true because I feel it. You know? Okay, maybe well let me jump in here. I thought uh, you kind of answered the question which we were going to ask you, so we were kind of behind the scenes debating whether Wilson continued to ask that question. But let me ask, let me ask the next question, which is, there's actually, there's two quotes in the piece by Lewis Gordon. The one which you sort of kind of talked about when you talked about how people have read Fanon like differently over time. And I, I love that quote, which is the, the first one, which we can move on from, which is, I think it says um, by the 1980s, uh, that the language we learned at Fanon's lives in the 80s, the search for post-coloniality May require more than black skin, what black skin white mask offers, which is a, which is a, which perhaps you want to answer that in some way, because that is my, is a debate I'm trying to think through with what young people are going back to Fanon, but maybe Fanon is not, maybe, I don't know, it's, does Fanon have all the answers? Then people also reading David Scott, who said the 1980s was the end of kind of dreaming in terms of thinking about like revolutionary time, that it's the end of that. So maybe you want to answer that. But I think the question that will, um, the, if you want, answer that as part of this, this question. Too. But the other quote that we're having here by Lewis Gordon is about how Fanon was um, chiefly in the business of producing his own ideas, not just applying those of white European theorists. And this is that quote about how many biographies of Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Fanon do we need before it is recognized that they also produced ideas? It is as if they, it is as if to say that white thinkers provide theory and black thinkers provide experience for which all seek explanatory force from the former. Can you just like say a little bit about that? Derek, you want to take this? <laughs> and I, I don't know why I threw in that first bit because that first bit is part of the other, you know, the other, because I was just, I, I'm always thrown by that tension within the way people read right. Fanon, right. like now. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe I could just, in a, in a very personal way, uh, uh, um, maybe it doesn't answer the question or respond to the question, um, or maybe it does so obliquely. Um, my sister was so much, so much younger than me, has no memory of uh, apartheid-only signs, the so-called born free, you know. She, she, she does not remember, as I do, um, having to go around the corner uh, with my black dark dad to a little hole in the bakery wall or not being able to go to beaches and those kinds of things. She has no memory of that. So to the extent that that sense of dehumanization that I felt to the extent that the psychological of apartheid in the sense of the recognition of myself as a human being, you know, she doesn't have that experience at the level of the affective as I have. So I don't know if she would read Fanon, whether she would quite get it in the way that I got it in that sense. So in as much as a person, a 20 year old today, um, 
born in 2000, reads for known, is active in Roads Must Fall or in politics. I don't know. I ask, I wonder which Fanon speaks to them by virtue of their personal history. And I often wonder, does he speak to them in that same effective sense? And perhaps I should not, I'd like that to be the case as well, but perhaps it's, it's, it's not, and it shouldn't be in the sense of Derek's quote, each generation, you know, fulfills or betrays the mission. Um, I don't know. <laughs> You're muted, Derek. Maybe taking up the second part of the question, um, I mean, I, I, one could only agree with Lewis Gordon's um, suggestion, although I'm also reminded of something um, uh, Richard Pithouse has said, and, you know, it's important to, to, to note him, I think, just because if we're thinking about Fanon in South Africa, you know, he's, he's made some really, really important contributions. Um, but he's got this quote where he says something like, if there's a philosopher of the moment, it is by some margin um, Fanon. And, you know, he's talking more about the so-called developing world, presumably. But if one now, I mean, what I'm saying is, it may sound odd to say, but it's early days. It's 52 that Black Skin, White Masks was published. So what does that mean? That's going to take us to, what, 70 years pretty soon that it's been out. So it sounds odd to say that it's early days. But, you know, there's, there's a pretty vast archive of different ways that people have taken up Fanon and tried to do things. From the cultural studies moment of the 1980s that I think Sean was, was, was thinking about earlier to, to when he's been thought of as aligned to, you know, Lacanian psychoanalysis, which is a move that's received a lot of critique to how he's being taken up in Afro-pessimism today. In other words, the story is, in a way, you could, you could argue, just beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, you know, we, we're tussling with some of these questions in terms of decolonizing the, the institution, the, the academy. Um, and, and my sense is that Fanon's importance is already proliferating in multiple ways, but will continue to do so. So let us hope that we'll get to a point when, when Lewis's quote doesn't need to be stressed so much. I mean, presumably it'll need to be stressed for a long time, but I think there's a long, long way to go for, for the impact of where Fanon is, is going to be heard. I mentioned briefly about Afro-pessimism, and Afro-pessimism does this move where they say we now need to think political ontology, which for, for, for Lesbian and I is, is kind of important because you could say that psychology is not enough when you want to think about what has to happen in terms of transformation, in terms of how to conceptualize racism. So this move to political ontology is in some respects, you could say, contested by some Fanon scholars who want to keep Fanon to Sartre, existentialism, that kind of domain of influence. But I think it's a nice example of how Fanon is, is dense enough, complex enough to, to feed multiple different discourses. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a series of thoughts. And I think oh, there was something else I was going to say about that, but let's, let, let's, let's leave it at that. Well, if I may just I, jump in for five seconds, just uh, uh, Derek, uh, uh, Sean's question. You know, and what Afro-pessimism does, Sean and William, is it actually brings back black skin, white masks. <laughs> so it brings back attention to it, but in a completely different register. Yeah, which, sorry, I just remembered my point. We could also take seriously, Lesbian has just kind of done that. Who are Fanon's interlocutors? So, mm. you know, like, and, and I think what's nice is one of the, the closing chapters in the book it is actually a chapter by Lewis Gordon, which is all about Vico. And I think, you know, so it's not like in, in some kind of uh, traditional academic institution, they'd be like, well, you can't plagiarize someone's ideas and that might be a problem. But the point I was trying to make earlier is that 
Fanon doesn't stop with the end of Fanon's texts and, and, and how he's taken up in multiple different parts of the world by different thinkers. That, that kind of chorus um, is, is, is very interesting. And that's why I'm really happy that we've got a chapter on Biko in the book because Biko's Fanon is, is a very crucial Fanon. Can I just ask a quick question before Will ask? Is it's interesting that you say it's Fanon and Biko. I always wonder. We have we have you on here talking about Sabukwe. It's interesting that it's not because if Sabukwe is a sort of intellectual, I don't want to say his ancestor is probably one word of Biko. Um, I think his brother was in the PAC. Why is there no like say Fanon and Fanon and Sabukwe? The sister kind of a. I just, it's, it's I always find that interesting. Because Biko comes later, but yeah. he's, he's you know he already died. Yeah. Um, when Biko sort of brings back, as you say, channels, uh, like you know, Fanon living through him, if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that you say just it, it reminds us like that historical trajectory. So think about fifty-two is when Black Skin White Masks comes out. So by the time Biko uses Fanon, there's really quite a significant gap, right? I mean, a, a notable gap. I mean, it's what are we talking like 45, 50 years. So that's already a revitalization. Um, I mean, I don't know enough historically to know how much, and I mean, I've read a lot of the Subukwe stuff, but I don't know to what extent how, and I mean, also bear in mind how much time that, that Subukwe was in prison. So I don't know how many right, right, like, right. he was right. able to access. Um, yeah. But, you know, I don't know, Lesbian can maybe help me out that, but I mean, presumably there's this huge overlaps and parallels, but I think they're doing slightly different things Although having said that, the other person I wanted to mention was uh, Maboko More, who's got this this book on Biko, but and Fanon. But you know, he makes the the argument that so much of what uh, Fanon is doing, and he you know he, he carefully cites all those moments when when Fanon makes an explicit reference to South Africa. He he says what what Fanon is doing is is giving um, a language of experience and speaking to the actuality of everyday embodied physical experience. Um, and sorry, just to, to add a little bit to that, the, the other crucial element here, who is a figure that we mentioned in, in the book, is uh, Chobani Mangani. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, there's so many links. So I'm not really able to say much more about the Subukwe thing now. But, I mean, another, another moment where Fanon influences South Africa is not just through black consciousness, but through a type of black consciousness psychology and theorization that Chobani Mangani articulates and develops. Um, so it feels like there's a lot of these these spaces to return to, to open up, and also to anticipate in terms of future openings and articulations. I'm 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 going to jump in here now uh, and sort of think about what Leswin was saying just now, and what you've also added to Derek about the ways in which we can enter into Fanon and how there's still a lot that he has to offer and. Full disclosure, I'm a born free myself. And I think for me, similarly to you, Les, when I had that kind of breathtaking, transformative experience when reading Black Skin's White Masks for the first time and reaching the concluding remarks of, of the book. And it was a kind of, it kind of prompted a, I don't know what the word is, but a, a, a cognitive dissonance in the sense that you've just read this text where Fanon so passionately and eloquently and strikingly describes the 
humiliating, the debilitating, the devastating effects of racism, which as a black person, I myself experienced, of course, never to the extent uh, that those who lived during apartheid or, or periods of, of explicit segregation would, but still in, in post-apartheid South Africa, as people, as people often remind us, went through that. And then in his concluding remarks, seeing the extent to which Fanon is still committed to, to humanism, basically. And I think the lines that I read at the age when I first read Black Skins, White Masks, which were just etched in my memory, was when he said, I'm not a prisoner of history. I should not seek, therefore, the meaning of my destiny. Uh, and another moment when he talks about uh, to free the man of color from himself is what his, his project is invested in. And I, I guess to me that was just you know overwhelming to, to just see uh, a figure who was able to both talk so forcefully about what it's like to live in a racialized world, whereas at the same time being committed to transcending that racialized world and having a hope in transcending that racialized world, which to be a bit provocative uh, for me makes it difficult for me to see how Afro-pessimism can be reconciled uh, with Fanon's work because I see Fanon's work as, as deeply humanist. And I've said a lot now, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts there. There is a moment in the introduction when you, you do mention uh, the, the broader Afro-pessimist tradition, which, uh, to use your words, Derek, has sort of revived uh, black skins, white masks. And you say there that that sort of interpretation of Fanon does push against the kind of humanism that I've just cited. Uh, and in the entry, you say you can't give a viable response to that. But could I could I possibly tempt the both of you to to trying to attempt a response here, or to at least give your thoughts between this this tension on the one hand between Fanon forcefully talking about the experience of of racism, but at the same time being committed to a, a post racial future, one could say. Yeah, I mean, I'll just offer a bit. Okay, I mean, it, it's weird, you know, here's like a white guy talking about Afro-pessimism, but whatever, I, I won't claim to be able to represent it. But let me just say that um, I think there is a notable schism and, and, a, and a rupture, right? Because if you want to read Fanon in the vein of a type of humanism, um, even if it's it's qualified somewhat differently, you know, Paul Gilroy has, 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 has made this kind of argument. Um, and I think that's an absolutely legitimate and absolutely crucial way of, of reading Fanon, okay? But I suppose what I'm suggesting is there's fundamental discontinuities because at least as much as I understand Afro-pessimism, um, and I'm thinking here both of David Marriott and of Frank Wilderson, who interestingly enough, as I'm sure you know, is, is a kind of key Afro-pessimist um, theorist, but spent some time in, in at Witz actually in, in Johannesburg and as part of the ANC and you know his, his new book on Afro-pessimism and an earlier biographical book recounts much of that. So, which is interesting to say once again that Afro-pessimism is part of uh, uh, many things, but is also formed in some respects. You could argue from from the experience of apartheid. But let's just let's without let me cut to the chase. The, the idea in Afro-pessimism is that humanism is 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 a problem because humanism, by definition, is for Afro-pessimism. Uh, uh, fortified and brings itself into some kind of coherence precisely via anti-blackness. So there's no appeal to humanism in, in, in Afro-pessimism because humanism is fundamentally corrupted in as much as it has, and they would argue always has done, uh, consolidated any notion of the human via the uh, 
ex exclusion and fundamental, um, uh, well, yeah, objectification, exclusion of what blackness is. So once you have that in place, you start to realize, one, we're going to have quite discordant readings of Fanon. And just last comment, you know, that, that line that, that, that Leswin mentioned, um, the black man has no resistance, uh, ontological resistance in the eyes of the white man. I started collecting different interpretations of that line. And some people read it through Sartre. Some people talk it as about um, an, ex an, an attempt to get away from any um, essentializations of race. And of course, in, in Afro-pessimism, it means, it means something different. It means almost as if blackness has been excluded from ontologies, and, and there is no language for that. I'll stop there, but it's, it, let's just say it's not, it, there are major dissonances and, and divergences in the reading of Fanon, which I personally think is a, is a productive thing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just uh, two comments, nothing new. Derek said it very well. Um, and I liked, uh, William, the way in which you uh, presented your story as well. And this is precisely it, though, that if you have a political program I mean, there's a certain optimism, there's a certain hope, there's a certain commitment to a tomorrow or a better or a, a future, if you will. And the phenomenon of black skin, white masks, um, and the phenomenon of my experience, however, was of a despair as well. It was of a, of a wholeness of a story that took into account the anger, the frustration, and the absolute despair. The end of that uh, chapter five, uh, the lived experience of the black is, um, you know, I wanted, I came into the world wanting to be a man, wanting to be a human being, you know, and after being devastated, being flayed, being splayed, my body and all of this, and not just by the racist moment, but by a history of myth, of stories, of tom-toms, as he says, you know, um, straddling nothingness and infinity, I began to weep, you know, and my God, you know, just that sense of a despair alongside this hope for a new humanism. But here's the opening for Afro-pessimism as well, that this is not your mama's new humanism or your daddy's new humanism. This is not a, a feel-good humanism of, you know, kumbaya, you know. For Afro-pessimism, this new humanism is a complete and radical humanism that grows out of the ashes of a complete destruction, as it were. And there's a way in which, especially in the, in, the, in, in, the United, in the context of the United States, where you could argue on the one hand, you, have a, you had a black president, you are 60 years in after civil rights, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But still, the black man cannot go outside without fear of being shot and lives with that, with that fear for every waking moment, the sense of his or her place in this liberal democracy, quote unquote, you know, or the sense of, of living in the present as opposed to in 1960, how much has that really changed, you know? Hasn't the, hasn't the terms changed from a Jim Crow slavery to a carceral uh, 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 condition? or to the predatory violent black man, for example. So for every pessimism, the ontological structure hasn't changed. The black man still is responded to in terms of his social death. He has this. And so for them then, you cannot look at the humanist ideal of progress or of uh, 
you know, uh, uh, tolerance training, diversity training, and all of those kinds of things. It, it's much deeper than that, and it actually hasn't changed since slavery. The terms have just been shifted around a little bit. So in that sense, I can see, you know, given the context of a post-BLM, uh, you know, I can see the, 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 uh, the I don't want to say the appeal, but I can see how it, 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 it articulates and speaks to people in the way that it does. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Those are those are fair points. And I think another thing that your book addresses and, and takes note of, uh, a reminder to everyone listening, the book is Phenon Phenomenology and Psychology. What it mentions, which I think is also important and, and makes Fanon just a, a really difficult person to think with, but in a very productive way, as you say, Derek, is that you know, like all great thinkers, Fanon's intention was not to bequeath us with Fanonism, uh, like Marx's intention wasn't to bequeath us with Marxism nor nor Lenin's. Uh, and yet, that exists. Uh, it's funny we're all from we're all from South Africa, and the third largest political party in South Africa, the Economic Freedom Fighters, uh, calls itself Marxist Leninist Fanonian. So, how do we sort of think about a Fanon who? was trying to speak to his specific socio-historical context uh, with the Fanon that we apply to a different socio-historical context. As you say, Leswin, there are many continuities, but at the same time, there are also discontinuities. There are things that are different. There are things that, are, that have changed. And, and how do we do that without trying to elevate Fanon's insights into something of a grand theory, taking what's useful, but also understanding that we shouldn't make this uh, uh, a body of thought unto itself. You take it, Derek. <laughs> you know, it's it's a tension because, um, and it's often remarked, so towards the beginning of Black Skin, White Masks, you know, Fanon says these results are applicable only to a certain historical time and place. You know, I'm speaking as Martinique in, in a certain era in, in the history of colonialism. Um, but he also says later on, and, and you know, people pick up on this, racism, and presumably anti-black racism, is always the same in some respects. So I think, you know, those, those are both evocative comments. And maybe then the question for us is to get a sense of in which situations, for what political reasons, we need to be more particular and um, sensitive to the precise historical sociological coordinates of a form of, of anti-blackness here and now whilst also remembering the importance of certain overarching um, similarities, confluences, uh, lessons. And um, I mean, that's also what I was kind of suggesting. And, you know, we see it also theoretically in, in we've already indicated that there's major convergences, but also major divergences in how, how, how Fanon is used. And I think in retrospect, we could argue, how could it be otherwise? Like, you know, the, the very task that Fanon is trying to do is to think both psychologically and politically, both, you know, and philosophically and psychiatrically at the same time. So his thinking is kind of in a way trying to occur between disciplinary boundaries. In a way, you could say Fanon is trying to think impossibly. And there's another memorable line where he says something along the lines of the only project worth initiating is, is the end of the world, which seems to suggest that the enormity of, of white racism is so massive that it, it becomes very difficult to find the space to think about what an adequate challenge to that would be. 
But my conclusion there is just that like Fanon's thought is attempting in some respects what seems to be almost impossible. And as that uh, as such, the, the multiple tensions, um, impossibilities, divergences, um, uh, fights within the world of Fanon applications and scholarship is, is part of the deal. And mm -hmm. one of those would be that there are both really important lessons and, and ongoing historical continuities of anti-Blackness, as well as precise distinctions and differences that we, as of this generation, should be particularly attuned to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If I may just add my two cents, um, William, the danger is indeed a, 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 a reductionism of a known into a truth that's like a Ten Commandments, given what our position is, or our ideological stance is, or our dreams are, you know. Fanon is too complex for that, and it is precisely, and it's too varied for that, and it is precisely the thing, I think, that he is taken up, or that you're taking up, taking up by virtue of, again, I'll go back to that quote of Walter Benjamin's, the now, the recognizability of the now, from where you are, you know. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, just that relative opacity. Every generation has to take on the challenge. And, and I mean, you know, Fanon both gives us important tools and a huge inspiration, but is also attuned to the the fact that each temporality, each history brings with the different challenges. And is pretty much saying that they have to, each generation, take on the relative opacity of their political challenges. It's kind of like you're saying, I'm not going to be able to give you the message for that. That's what you need to do. But here's something. Um, and, and that's how I, I think one needs to take Fanon, both as an inspiration, but also as, as an awareness that the task is not for us to simply rely on every single thing about what he said to anticipate the future, mm -hmm. to remake Fanon. Can I just add to that a personal story, William? I mean, when I was in South Africa in the, in the, in the 80s, in a psychology department. I mean, we didn't like Freud. I mean, we were told Freud was all intrapsychic and all of this and all of that. And I made the comment that I would often quote to a would-be Freudian that famous line from Fanon, you know, the rifle of the Senegalese soldier is not a penis, but a genuine rifle, model Le Belle 1916 or something like that. And so I had this idea, you know, Freud bad, you know, and, you know and, and community psychology and all of those things. And then I came to the US and I studied in a psychoanalytic department. And by golly, I opened Fanon and I also read Fanon saying only a psychoanalytic interpretation can lay bare the, uh, you know, the affect, uh, the effect of disturbances of the black man. And I have to now wrestle with why is it that the image, the fantasy of the violent black man, the, the black man that's only a penis. Why is it that lynching always involved castration? Why is it that we think of the black man in terms of dirt, in terms of feces, in terms of all of those kinds of things? Unconscious fantasies. And so now I had to readjust my dogmatism with respect to psychoanalysis by virtue of Fanon's inspiration, by virtue of Fanon telling me, I have, have a look there too. You know? and. That's not the only place to look, you know, and I have a problem with psychoanalysts saying this is only the psychoanalytic for known. I guess all of this to underscore, to echo, to amplify, to, to just repeat the, the different ways that if we are open to that inspiration from all these different sources, we are, we are all the more richer for the gift that is his work. 
And and speaking of of readjusting dogmatism, the recognizability of the now and relative opacity, I'm going to ask a final question. And thinking about the events, both of you are originally from South Africa, and South Africa is experiencing a devastating period of political crises for many years now. And mm -hmm. it reached a crescendo in July this year with the unrest and the spectacle of, of death and despair that surrounded that. And my one of my, you know, one of the, 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 the main memories I have of, you know, what was what's honestly quite a fresh experience. It feels like a lifetime ago. And I think the psychoanalytical can lay bare why it feels like a lifetime ago. It feels like we're all engaged in a kind of Freudian repression of what happened because tell you the truth, no one talks about it. It's almost as if, it's, as right. if it didn't happen. But one of my friends, uh, who's who's actually a, a, a friend of the show, Alex Hotz, who's appeared many times, and she actually appeared on, on the show that Sean and I did whilst this was all unfolding. And, you know, one of the first things she said uh, when the violence began was, we need to revisit Fanon. Uh, that was her sort of inclination um, when that was all happening. And so I suppose, you know, for someone who is, is still trying to make sense of that political moment, who admittedly is approaching it from, I think, uh, I wouldn't say a dogmatic standpoint, I want to be charitable to myself, but, you know, from a Marxist sort of materialist kind of analysis of the political forces and so on and so forth, um, I'm encountering brick walls where I just can't quite make sense of how South Africa witnessed the biggest episode of violence in its post-apartheid history. And it's practically a footnote as we speak. We've sort of skipped along. We're all directing our minds to, to other things such as the local government elections. Uh, the coronavirus crisis has been rampaging and that's another thing that we've all been repressing. So uh, I think, how can Fanon help us think through this moment. Um, how have you two thought through this moment, uh, watching it unfold from from afar and having family in South Africa uh, and so on? Phew, as, as we used to say, that's a higher grade question. That's a Wurkrat question. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I have a satisfactory answer myself, save to say, to begin again, to always begin again, you know, and to begin again with, with Fanon. Um, and to do this in two kinds of ways, I think. I mean, if, it, it's, a, it's a particular kind of challenge for me being here, although I try to maintain relationships with South Africa in terms of research and in terms of my involvement at the University of the Western Cape. But um, it, 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 it is obviously curtailed by the by distance and by uh, an investment in a life here as uh, you know uh, even as I as I am invested there too in a practical everyday sense I'm not um, but I think for myself it is to choose and yeah I go back to Gramsci I've chosen my site of struggle you know and that is the academy and that is teaching and so I do that at, uh, through my involvement at UWC for example that's my site of struggle where I bring Fanoni and I bring the lessons in and I, 
and I and I counter the try to counter the repressive uh, modus, um, you know, and uh, in psychology to kind of lay bare some of the dynamics at work in our wanting to forget and our desire to forget or to move on and or our existential kind of angst about acknowledging things. So I try to do that in this book, through this book, through my teaching. But it is small because there has to be a betrayal of involvement in organizational politics and the like and the like, and I wish I could do that too. But the, in Gramsci's terms, the committed intellectual, you know, or the organic intellectual of the working class, which I still think of myself, choosing a site of struggle. Um, and that side of struggle for me involves Fanon, and it is in the academy. Yeah, it, I mean, it's <coughs> it, it's extraordinarily difficult or, or, or odd to, to try to make sense of these things from, from being in, a, in another continent. Um, and I suppose what I would say is just two things. One is what happened uh, earlier in the year feels like it's it's underlined by a kind of untimeliness. Like it's the kind of thing that happened or could be happening at a much earlier time. So, and often in, in post-apartheid South Africa, we have these moments where something <laughs> like it's been taken from an earlier period of history that we thought or had hoped maybe in a somewhat deluded uh, quasi, you know, white liberal sensibility that that was now finished and, and that we were moving on from. And I think that that untimeliness is is something that we get a sense of in, in, in Fanon. Uh, there's tremendously interesting things about how he thinks about what we might be unprepared for, the temporality of change. Um, you know, there's this moment, actually, as Sheila Mbembe picks up on, on how uh, the experience of time becomes, via almost a kind of Freudian dynamics of, of compulsion, repetition, or, or, or stasis gets that historical and experiential time amongst the oppressed gets fixed in a certain time and place. So, I mean, that's one way of maybe thinking about that. But I suppose what I would say is I, I don't really feel I can say anything, but I did mention Maboko More's work already. And he's got a great paper, which, of course, you won't be able to see here. And it's a bit weird in an interview to be recommending an academic paper. I mean, who does that? But I'm doing it. <laughs> this is the right place. This is the right place. So he's got a paper called Locating France Fanon in Post-Apartheid South Africa. And one of the things he, he suggests is we often talk about black skin, white masks. But of course, there's a really rigorous and robust critique of post-liberation um, states in, in Wretched of the Earth. And he claims, and I totally agree with him, that sometimes reading, particularly the third chapter of that book, Pitfalls of National Consciousness, mm -hmm. like he says, you know, you read Absolutely. that and you think this was written for South Africa. And, and and one one of the things I was so surprised about, you know, trying to read Fanon in in university was like you often assume, and I've been saying it today, 1952, you know, history of colonialism, but he's also talking about what happens post liberation, and his critique is cutting and prescient and and anticipates what's what's going to happen in very acute terms. Mm -hmm. um, and Moray says, he says, one of the things that, that really sort of punches you in the gut when you read his article is he says, there's no, we should be aware of the extent to which anti-Black racism continues in a post-apartheid project, so much so that one starts to even, you know, at least in his terms, question that demarcation between apartheid and post-apartheid. And, and that continuity is something that desperately needs more attention to. Um, and I just could jump in and underscore, but you see, here's the thing, William, too, in relation to your question. 
even though he speaks to that violence that you that you just uh, that, uh, you know in, in June July, and you can and provides a kind of a a response in the uh, as a in the wretched of the earth in the sense of the post liberation uh, uh, countries. What he also does though is to think it not just in terms of that political project or the post colonial project, but to also allow us to think it in a psycho psycho psychological or cultural psychological terms as a recurrence of the symptom or, you know, and that's what Derek meant when it, it, it felt uncanny, it feels out of time, we should have moved behind it. But so what does it mean at the level of the return of the symptom as if a trauma, as if a wound shows itself again and reiterates at one end, but also in an existential phenomenological way, you know, what does it mean to live and to relive this 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 angst? Uh, so all of those, if we could take all of those, which is a tall order, but I think we are all the more richer towards that project of understanding. And uh, yeah. And speaking of of taking all of those, um, thank you to you both. I think this is a a good point to end. And your book, I think from what I've seen, and I'm very much looking forward to getting my hands on a copy when it's out, I think is is a great effort in, in trying to, without trapping Fanon in any disciplinary boundary, addressing Fanon as the psychologist, as a phenomenologist, as a political scientist. And uh, thank you to both of you for coming onto the show. A reminder of the book, it's called Fanon, Phenomenology and Psychology. It's edited by Derek Hook, Leswin Lauscher, as well as Mirage Desai, and it's going to be out with Routledge in November. Uh, thank you very much to the both of you for coming on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hope that uh, we will see your faces again soon. And thank you very much to my co-host, Sean Jacobs. Uh, a reminder that this is going to be the last time that Sean will be regularly appearing on the show alongside me. And uh, thanks, as always, to our excellent producer, Antoinette Engel. And Please do support us. Find us on your favorite podcasting platform. Go to africasacountry.com to check out all of the new writing on the website, as well as to support us directly. Thank you and goodbye.